And good morning again, everybody. Thank you for being here today. Um, just one reminder, next Sunday we are planning on having a baptism. So if you're interested in baptism, uh, there's still some time if you'd like to sign up for that. We aren't offering the kids class right now, but if you're 12 or older and you're interested in being baptized next Sunday, <clears throat> just let the office know and uh, we will get that set up. So who are you? Have you ever been asked that question before? And what kind of answer was the person looking for as to your response? Maybe they were asking you in terms of, well, what's your name? Or maybe they were wanting to know, uh, what is your profession? But the question itself, as it turns out, is getting harder and harder to answer, particularly for younger generations. And it seems that this, this consequence of not knowing one's identity can be dire. A woman named Mary Eberstadt has written a book called Primal Screams. And the, the entire title is Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Something Called Identity Politics. And in that book, she describes a generation that is lost and crying out in complete distress in desperately trying to understand who they are. And this turmoil from this distress has given rise to what we now call identity politics. And many are saying it has all the makings of a social and political catastrophe because of the sharp divisions that it's causing among Americans. As a matter of fact, uh, one uh, sociologist, a man by the name of Durston, took uh, the, the findings of her research and, and, and basically summed them up by saying this, Eberstadt's research indicates that increased sexual freedom led to the decimation of the family, which resulted in the loss of family identity, which produces Eberstadt's primal screams. We'll talk more about that loss of family identity. Uh, but uh, um, this has resulted in a massive increase in mental health issues, mass killings, and the rise of extreme identity groups at war with each other, all symptoms of a society rapidly spiraling into collapse. Now, uh, headlines of newspapers are picking up on this phenomena. As a matter of fact, recently in the Washington Post, a headline read, in America, talk turns to something not spoke of for 150 years, civil war. And on that, in that same article, it goes on to talk about a hyper-partisan atmosphere and a crumbling of confidence in the country's democratic institutions and its paralyzed federal government. I'm sure you've felt that, that Congress just seems like it's constantly locked in this stalemate and can't move forward. In addition to that, the Atlantic said that it's the end of the American order. Now, this brings us to a question that Mary Eberstadt addresses in regard to these headlines. And it's a question I think is looming in, in many of our minds. She says this question, states it, How has the matter of identity come to be emotional and political ground zero for so many in the first place. How did we get to this point where identity has this 
huge voice in the future of America and how it's going. And it's become this front page issue, but the question of identity and who I am is not a new one. And this is a topic that I'd like to tackle this morning by exploring this question. What does Christianity have to say about identity and identity politics? How does our faith come to bear on this issue that just seems like a monster looming out there in the distance in so many ways? We'll be talking through a number of different texts this morning that I'll get to, uh, particularly as we look at what it means to have our identity as Christians. That's such an important point and topic. And we're continuing through this series called Nothing New, and I'm, I'm getting this this uh, theme from the writer of Ecclesiastes who said, there is nothing new under the sun. It is so true. This issue we're facing of identity politics is not a new one. It was around in biblical times among the Jews and the Greeks and the men and the women and the slaves and the free. It's been around for a while. So we're going to cover this today, this topic of identity politics. Next week, we're actually going to ask an even more sort of existential question is, are we living in the end? After looking at those headlines and looking at what's going on in the world, even feeling the smoke coming into our own place here, we were, I think many of us are thinking, well, is, is this it? We'll talk about that next week. This morning, I want to approach this subject of identity politics this way. First of all, we'll talk about, well, what are identity politics? We're going to define that. We'll even talk a little bit about the roots of it. Uh, and then how does the world determine your identity? <clears throat> and here's where the pastor Tim Keller has done incredible work in this subject of how the culture tells us what our identity is and, and how this comes to be in, in modern culture. Then the third question we'll ask is, what difference does Christianity make? answering that question, what does it mean to have our identity in Christ? Our identity in Christ means, and we'll talk through four different statements about our identity in Christ. So let's start out with this first question. Um, and, and let's be clear about what we're talking about. I've included a definition in the sermon notes. By the way, sermon notes are available at the front desk now. We're just starting to pass paper back out again, so we're getting the bulletin out too. But uh, a good definition, this came from Merriam-Webster of identity politics, is politics in which groups of people having a particular racial, religious, ethnic, social, or cultural identity. Notice how broad that's getting. And by the way, that's just continuing to get more and more broad. Uh, tend to promote their own specific interests or concerns without regard to the interests or concerns of any larger political group. Now we're seeing this happening. Uh, a few weeks ago, I brought up the movement called Black Lives Matter. Now, I've been very careful to distinguish between the message and the movement. The message is one I absolutely and wholeheartedly agree with. Yes, Black Lives Matter. However, there is a movement that goes well beyond race. And when you read through the tenets of the Black Lives Matter movement, it's very inclusive also and, uh, with the LGBTQ community. Now, why is that? Because they've got this common foundation in the identity politics arena. So these two groups have, have coalesced, and what happens? Well, they're seeking more political power. That's what creates these identity politics. And politicians are more than willing to promise them to give them 
much more in the area of power and rights. Now, the roots of identity politics, and I believe that this is where Mary Eberstadt is correct, goes back to the sexual revolution of the 60s. And as the sexual revolution increased and as people became less and less inclined to a biblical sense of sexuality, it led to the decimation of the family. Marriage declined. The divorce rate continued to climb. And the nuclear family began to dissolve. And what went along with it was a sense of who we were, a sense of identity. As a matter of fact, in the book, she makes this assertion. Who am I, <clears throat> she says, an illiterate peasant of the Middle Ages was better equipped to answer that question than many people in advanced societies in this century. He may only have lived until the age of 30, but he spent his days among family and in towns practicing a shared faith and thus developed a vivid sense of those to whom he was elementally connected, not just in the course of his life, but before birth and after death. Now, only faith can give you purpose after death. So as that has gone to the wayside, so has this sense of identity, who we are. I heard a phrase, I think, that summed this up well, that I know who I am because I know who we are. I believe that was from an African man by the name of Ubuntu who said that. So then how do people answer this question of who am I? And culture is happy to help you with this. As a matter of fact, our culture plays a big, big role in, in us determining who we are. Uh, the modern answer to that question has changed quite a bit from the traditional answer and this is where I believe that Timothy Keller has done some amazing work. As a matter of fact, he's got some great online lectures about this subject of identity and, and who we are. And he asserts, he's talked about this, and he talks about how modern culture will, what they will use, the three questions modern culture will use for us to determine who we are. And it comes down to these three questions, and I think he nailed it. The first question is, well, to what do I aspire in other words, what is my sort of deepest dream and want? Maybe it's to be a fill-in-the-blank. As a matter of fact, we start conditioning children very early by asking them, what do you want to be when you grow up? And that's typically always referring to some profession they think they may want to go into. Uh, so maybe it's a profession or it could be an achievement in that profession, but all your decisions really are being governed as to whether or not you are meeting that to which you aspire. So that plays a big role in our identity. The second question is, what am I worth? What am I worth? This is a sense of self-worth that comes from an assessment on how well you are meeting that to which you aspire to be. If you're aspiring to be a, a world-class uh, football player, well, then you're going to assess that. You're going to assess your worth based on how well you're doing that. And then the third question is, well, who gets to say? Who gets to provide this evaluation of how well I'm doing? 
So these are the three questions modern culture asks to determine one's identity. But every culture is going to direct its members in a certain way. It's not going to ask you if this is what you want, by the way. It's telling you this is how you determine who you are. And traditionally, identity was formed from the outside in. People would look outside themselves to figure out who they were. So they would look outside. They would look at their community. They would look at their family. They would determine, okay, what is it that my community, my group needs? They would look to God to determine who they were, but they would definitely go outside of themselves to figure out their identity. That's the traditional way of doing it. Then you would align yourself with this. And your self-esteem was given to you by the community on how well you were doing this. You would make sacrifices for that higher good you were pursuing. You had your place, your family, you had your church. But your identity came from the outside. Odds were, vocationally, you would do whatever your, your mother or your dad did. If he was a farmer, you'd be a farmer. If he was a hunter, you'd be a hunter. If he was a baker, you'd be a baker. Now, by the way, that's why there are so many last names like Smith and Hunter and Baker because that's what, that's what the person did, shepherd. You would learn that trade, and you would be in a church. But the modern approach is very, very different. You see, the modern approach to identity is inside out. So you look deeply within yourself. You look at your deepest passions and desires, your deepest feelings and dreams, and then you tell the people around you, you tell them, well, this is who I am, with the expectation that they will make the sacrifices and accommodate you. And then you evaluate yourself and determine your own value. You are your desires. By the way, there's a song that illustrates this very, very well. One line of a song. Climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow until what? Till you find your dream. Because that is the deepest and most important thing about you. It could be a mantra, as a matter of fact, for the modern approach to identity. Now, this approach to identity is also extremely brutal. And here's why. Because it takes a good thing and it makes it an ultimate thing. So it can make a good thing like doing well in your career or doing well in school or being a good employee, and it makes it an ultimate thing that you're going to assess your personal worth upon. And that's the brutality of it. I thought this was illustrated very well. You know, I've always uh, enjoyed watching tennis. One of my favorite players was a guy by the name of Boris Becker. You may remember him, a red-haired German, excellent tennis player. But at the very top of the tennis world, he was, when, uh, he was on the brink of suicide. And he said this. He said, I had won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player. He said, I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. And this is the song of many pop stars and movie stars, by the way, who end up committing suicide. He said, they have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. He said, I had no inner peace. I was a puppet on a string. Because, you see, once he'd actually achieved 
that which he felt was his deepest desire, he got it and he found out just how unfulfilling it was. But then there's the other extreme. If you're not getting anywhere close to achieving that which you think gives you ultimate meaning, identity, and purpose, guess what? You're going to be crushed. You're going to be depressed. I've heard that one of the most painful moments for a musician who sets out into, into New York City, they want to make it big, they want to be part of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, and they step off that bus in New York City, and they hear somebody on the corner playing the same instrument they do, and guess what? They're better. What happens to that person in that moment? If everything, if their deepest part of them, their very identity is pinned on how well they can play that instrument, they're crushed. Now, let's look at that in, this, in, in regard to our previous conversation. When politics get involved in this quest for identity, let's say your deepest desire is to change the American system. For whatever reason, I mean, you could say, let's say you want to change it to, to favor uh, women's rights. Well, you'll develop an identity in feminism. And if all of your self-worth hangs on how well you're changing the system, how far are you going to go to change it? Will the means of change end up being, let's just burn down the system that exists? By the way, I'm not picking on women. You can fill in the blank with any number of things there, okay? I want to be clear about that, too. So what's the answer to this question um, of identity? And then this final question, well, what difference does Christianity make? What difference does it make? What does our identity in Christ mean after all? Uh, as a Christian, what is that deepest part of me that deserves to be the primary motivation of my purpose and my being and governing what I do and my thoughts? Where do I find my worth and who evaluates it? Who tells me? that I'm worth something. And I think the Apostle Paul sums this up quite well in his prayer. Uh, this is for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. He says this, praying for the church in Ephesus. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So there's our starting point, okay? Our, our jumping off point when we start talking about identity is this depth of love that God has for us. And I believe the Bible teaches us that when it comes to human identity, there are actually only two possibilities, just two. You are either in Jesus Christ or you are not in Jesus Christ. Those are the two identities possible as it pertains to the Scriptures. And guess what? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? There's freedom. There is a way to be free of all these conflicting groups engaging your self-worth on your performance, and that's through identity in Jesus Christ. And I love what Paul Alexander says about this. 
He says, being in Christ, united to Christ by faith in him and repentance from our sins, relativizes our old identities and even gives us a new identity that we share with everyone else who is in Christ regardless of our differences. Now, what does that mean? See, as a Christian, we still have passions and desires. Uh, you still have a passion to, to teach, to raise kids, to, uh, to do well in your job, and you should. But what happens? You see, Christ relativizes that. In other words, that passion becomes relative to what it is in comparison to having our identity in Jesus Christ, being fully loved, fully accepted by him. You still have that passion, that desire, but it puts it in its proper place. It's no longer an ultimate thing. There are no longer ultimate pursuits, and also our worth isn't based in the performance of reaching these pursuits. Boy, that's an important concept to get because you have a culture that's screaming something else at you that's very, very different than that. We're made perfect. Do I still screw up? You bet I do. But you know what? When I'm in Christ, and when God the Father looks down on me, he doesn't see all the rotten stuff Chad does. He sees his son, Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. That when the Father sees us, he sees the good works of his own son, Jesus, and not the crummy stuff that we did. As a matter of fact, all that stuff you did in your past that maybe haunts you or keeps you awake at night, it's all in Christ too. That's a very important concept to get. So what does that look like? Uh, and, and there's many benefits and freedoms that we can enjoy by virtue of being saved, but I want to highlight four of these. First of all, we are free to seek the good of our city. The good of our city, we're free to seek it. This comes from Jeremiah 29, 7, which states, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So these were Jews that had been displaced. They were living in exile in Babylon. And God told these Jews living in exile out of the promised land, which they had fought and received. He said, while you're living in that city, do good for that city. That was mind-blowing. But Lord, they had conquered us. He said, I'm telling you, it will be for your welfare to seek the good of that city. Now, these Jews were oppressed. So consider the difference then between how a Christian can bless their town versus what the culture's at times saying, which seems to be burn it down. Um, I, I was thrilled when I saw that ballot for all of these city offices that needed to be filled. I was thrilled to see so many names from First Baptist Church on that ballot. That's perfect. We want Christians going out and assuming places in public office. Thank God some of you are willing to do that. And we should be praying for you. Christians can and should seek these opportunities. I don't see room for Christians to participate in anarchy. It's always easier to annihilate something than to build something up. And it's my hope that First Baptist Church will lead the way in praying for and expressing concern for the city of Sheridan. I hope all the churches in Sheridan are leading the way in that regard. 
So we're free to seek the good of our city. Then secondly, we're also, and this almost seems ironic, we're also free to be citizens of another country. First of all, look at uh, Philippians 1.27. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So first see this prioritization. What are we expending our energy on? What is it that unites us? It's for the gospel. This is about loving our neighbor well, that we're standing together in unity, single-mindedly of the faith of the gospel. This is what we are primarily fighting for. Everything else is secondary. And why is that? Because we are free to be citizens of another country. Now look at these two verses. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So this great transformative power of God speaks to his power in making us a citizen of his country. So whether or not I get my way, politically speaking, remember that we aren't really home yet. And I love America, and I want what's best for her, but you know what? Ultimately, I serve a king of another country. One more quote from Paul Alexander in regard to this. If we are citizens of heaven, then the drive towards self-exalting nationalism can be tamed and transformed into a proper love for country that loves and serves our neighbor. Our secure identity in Christ frees the church to preach the gospel to sinners rather than yelling to be heard by the government as yet another special interest group demanding exceptional treatment. We ought to be different. Primary to us is not getting our way politically. Now, should Christians vote? Yes. Should we seek political positions? Absolutely. All of these things, even our own vocations, are secondary in regard to serving those around us and getting the gospel to them. And then third, we're also free to embrace all races, genders, and socioeconomic statuses. Um, and look at this next passage, Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. It says there, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is either, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you all, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, what is this verse telling me? And clearly, I hope you can see, again, there's nothing new under the sun. There's a reason that Paul is specifying that there's now neither Jew nor Greek, because people desperately found their identity and felt certain privileges of being in certain classes. And he's saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the great leveler. These groups have been subjugating each other. And these quote-unquote lesser identities do not give one privilege. 
And we all become heirs to this promise of Abraham, promise that one day we too will enter this eternal promised land. So we're free to embrace people. And, and you know what? I don't expect non-believers to act like Christians. This gives us the freedom to reach out and love people that don't believe what, what we do. And by the way, why should we expect them to adhere to biblical principles when they don't buy the Bible? And you can love them right where they are. And then finally, we're free to practice biblical sexuality. We are free to practice biblical sexuality. This comes, I want to look at Genesis uh, 128. And God blessed them. This is God, this is uh, given to Adam and Eve. And God said to them, to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and, every, and, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God tells Adam and Eve to procreate. And the life that would come from them would be absolutely precious. And God has given us parameters and constraints for the purpose of protecting us. Because as it turns out, when you stray from what God has designed, you in fact open up Pandora's box. A book came out in 1934. It was called Sex and Culture. It was written by a man named J.D. Unwin. And he examined the data. He looked at 86 different societies and cultures to see if there was any relationship between, quote-unquote, sexual freedom and the flourishing of a culture. So this was a study done in, in it was uh, done by, he was not a Christian, by the way. He was a professor at Oxford. And he does a study, 86 different societies and cultures, looking at a correlation between, again, total sexual freedom where anything goes and the flourishing of that culture. And what was the result of this study? Here's the, the summary. That if total sexual freedom was embraced by a culture, the culture, that culture collapsed within three generations. The culture is usually conquered or taken over by another culture. In addition to this, the same study went on to say that when strict prenuptial chastity was abandoned, absolute monogamy, that'd be one man and one woman together, deism or belief in God, and rational thinking disappeared within three generations. Now, one smart person, I referenced him earlier, a man by the name of Kirk Durston, he took, he took Unwin's findings and he wanted to ask the question, well, based on his findings, how is the United States of America doing? The answer's not good. Durston, as did Mary Eberstadt, who wrote Primal Screams, identified the 60s as the turning point in American sexuality and with the sexual revolution. And then in the 70s, uh, that was when you really saw premarital sex becoming uh, culturally acceptable. And then by 2017, it was reported that over half of U.S. teens had intercourse by the age of 18. And the stats show that virgins make up only 12.3% of females and 14.3% of males aged 20 to 24. And yes, monogamy is becoming decreasingly popular, along with the belief in God. 
And by the way, postmodernism, if you've heard of that, has basically destroyed rational thinking because truth is no longer absolute. It's relative. It's subjective. And it's been replaced with, you know, again, moral relativism. You can just do what seems right to you. So based on this man Durston's comparison of Unwin's findings to current American society, he says this, uh, Unwin's three main predictions, the abandonment of rationalism, deism, and absolute monogamy are all well underway, which makes the ultimate prediction appear to be credible, the collapse of Western civilization in the third generation. I'm just full of good news, aren't I? Now, they consider a generation to be 33 years, so that would look to about 2070 based on this study as to the collapse of Western society. Now, the culture is going to tell you, you know what, it's just sex. It's just two consenting adults in a room doing what they want to do. No, it's not. God knows what he's doing. And, you know, and we as Christians, and gosh, hear me on this, young people, you have the freedom not to do it the world's way. We have so many people confused about who they are, desperate for an identity. But see, as Christians, we have an identity. We have an identity rooted in the love of an eternal father, who tells you you are dearly loved. He tells you by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you are fully accepted. And you have infinite value. It could be that the greatest thing you could do for your country is to fully accept the saving work of Jesus Christ and fully find your identity in him. So if I was going to sum this all up together, enjoy freedom through your identity in Christ. Enjoy freedom through your identity in Christ. Free from all these, these identity groups that are desperate to indoctrinate you and tell you who you should be. That you should be boxed into some kind of second-rate view of yourself. I want to close uh, with a final scene. This, is, this was from the movie uh, Blood Diamond. Um, in that movie, it's about this village in Africa that was raided by the diamond miners, the owners of the diamond mine. They sent in uh, these soldiers to go in. They would go into a village, and they would basically take away the men to work in the mine. Then they would find the young boys and turn them and brainwash them into being their soldiers, to be their enforcers. And those young boys would go to other villages and raid them and, uh, and, and recruit other young men. So this one village was raided, and there was a man named Solomon who was taken to find these, these uh, large diamonds in, in a river. Uh, and he was at gunpoint forced to look for these diamonds. His son, Dia, was, was pushed into this group of soldiers, and they started brainwashing his son. And they started telling him that in order to be a real man, you had to carry a gun. You had to shoot people. You had to torture people if they didn't do what you told them to do. And then in the final scene of the movie, this man Solomon comes face to face with his own son, Dia. 
And it's a boy that he didn't recognize. And his son, Dia, has a gun pointing in his face. And his father's looking at his son. And he says to him, what are you doing? He says, look at me, what are you doing? You are Dia of the Mende tribe. And at the same time, the, the son's got the, the gun pointing at his father. He says, you're a good boy. He says, you love school. He says, your mother loves you. He said, she waits by a fire when you come home to have your, your food ready with, with your sister and your newborn little, little brother. He said, the cows are waiting for you when you come home to, to follow you. And there's tears streaming down his face. And then he continues. He says, I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. He says, I am your father who loves you. And you will come home with me, and you will be my son. The son puts down the gun. He's crying too. You know, at times we forget who we are. We forget that we are children dearly loved by an eternal father. And that is the most important and deepest part of our identity. I don't care... Um, when it comes to our passions, when it comes to athletics, these are all distant seconds in who we are. And your performance in that has no bearing on how much your father loves you. So accept that identity, that far superior identity that we have in Christ to anything this world has to offer. Please pray with me. Lord, we are living in a confused, confused world, Lord. As, as evil has come in and decimated everything that you have called good, it has left people starving for an identity. People desperately want to know who they are, what their purpose is, why they're here. It's not found in gender or race or sexual orientation. It is found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for making us good. loved, accepted. And I pray that that would be the deepest truth of each of us, that we wouldn't look to our performance to tell us whether or not we have worth or value, but that it comes from you. Remind us of that throughout the week. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.